Hey there. Thanks for joining us for the latest podcast from Resound Church. We really believe that together we are better, and our heart is to reach, send, nurture, and disciple people as they become all that God has intended them to be. You can subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or head over to our website, resound.church forward slash app, to grab our app, which will keep you up to date with everything going on. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Awesome. Well, today we're in for a bit of a treat. Um, we're going to have a message from Dom Bird. Dom is the senior pastor at Sunny Hill Church in Poole in the UK. You might remember him if you're here a couple of years ago in uh, 2019. He and his wife Lou and their kids came and they were here for a couple of months in Australia. And we've become really good friends with them. Sarah and I had the opportunity to, to catch up with them in the UK in, in the end of 2019. And they had hoped to come back in, you know, this sort of period, but obviously COVID. Isn't that our thing? But COVID. Um, but we're so fortunate that we get to have him online today. So we're going to throw over to the video and um, yeah, that'll be awesome. And I'll come back after. It's awesome. Good morning, Resound Church. It is so good to be with you this day. My name is Dominic and uh, I have the privilege of leading Sunny Hill Church alongside my wife on the south coast of the UK. And whether you're watching online or in the room this morning at Resound, I just want to welcome you. Uh, Some of you may remember me, myself, my family visited nearly two years ago. Can you believe that? And uh, what an amazing trip that was. Like, I've had a lot of high points in my life. Um, Married, obviously, um, the most remarkable woman. Had three great kids, Caleb 9, Judah 7, Zeke, who's 4. But without doubt, the highlight of my life, that, that moment where I hit the pinnacle of experience, was on a Sunday afternoon after the first time I preached at Resound back in 2019. And Pastor Wayne and Ruth took us to Ramsey Street. My gosh, that was like heaven on earth, seeing where Toadie lived and all that kind of stuff and the Kennedys, um, and that just kind of lodged in my mind. And now, when I'm stressing out about something, Ramsey Street is my happy place. I just close my eyes, and I think of Wayne and Ruth standing at number seven, Ramsey Street. My gosh. And so our plan... Our hope is that if we can come up with a quick buck kind of idea and make a few million pounds is to buy a house on Ramsey Street. But until then, it is good to be with you on stream this morning. Um, just to say that we love Resound Church. It really is like, in many ways, a second home for us, second church home for us. There's not many churches we go to where we feel like we could just slot nicely into here, but Resound is definitely one of them. We love Pastor Wayne and Ruth. Definitely love Ruth more than Wayne because Wayne is nuts. Um, but we also love Trent, Sarah. I mean, just a remarkable family and the Scamptons as well, um, who we've come to know quite well during uh, coronavirus season. Um, but it's just great to be with you today. And my hope this morning is that as we open God's word and look at some stuff together, that we'd just be provoked in our faith to believe for greater things ahead of us as the church of Jesus Christ. And so currently, you're in a series at the moment called The Church Is. And I think it's a brilliant series title, The Church Is, because it's a time where we just need to define and redefine what church is all about. And so my hope this morning is that I can add to the series that you started a couple of weeks ago. 
It's fair to say that over the last year, the world has changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, it's just, it's almost unrecognizable. Um, people's working habits have changed. People's shopping habits have changed. Like, education has changed. I know you guys in Melbourne have had it quite hard. But, like, literally, our church gatherings uh, have pretty much stopped in physical locations for almost 56 weeks, which is just crazy when you think about it. And uh, the kids have been out of school. And so my wife is looking like 50 years older than she was when we last visited (laughs) Melbourne two years ago. Like literally, she's got less hair. She's got more boils. It's all going crazy in the birdhouse. I mean, does does that happen, Richard? I don't know if that even happens. More boils. boils. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, just the wheels have come off the wagon. And, you know, with education, the political climate, um, just, just the economy, everything in the world is shaking. And it's a, it's a time where we go, well, what does this mean for the church? Because is it, is it realistic? Is it reasonable? Is it even righteous to think that the church will go back to some form of what it was before, to return to some form of the normality that we enjoyed before. And it's that question that I really want to get into today as we think about the church is. Because what I actually want to say is this, is that like crisis is the environment where God does his best work. And so maybe you're a seasoned believer and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're thinking, well, as soon as church can just go back to the way it was, then we can carry on with business as usual. But I wholeheartedly believe that even though God didn't send coronavirus, that he can use this kind of chaos and carnage in the world to do a dramatic work in the church that I believe has been so long needed. And uh, so it's that I want us to think about today. And so if you've got your Bibles, just go to Mark 10. We're just going to be there briefly. But there's this amazing moment where this rich young man, this rich young ruler, comes before Jesus and uh, he kind of says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was an awareness that there was more to life than what he was experiencing. I mean, he had money, he had influence, he had wealth, he had power, um, and he had prominence, yet he understood that there was something more, that there was something eternal that could be inherited. And so he comes to Jesus, this rabbi who is moving around the Middle East during this time, bringing incredible insights and wise teachings for people to glean from. And he has this question, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting because at the heart of the question, you see the heart of the issue, which is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus responds, you know, Jesus says, well, you, you know, you've got to keep the commandments. You know, you need to honor your father and mother. You know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. You know, at least fulfill the big ten commandments. But there are hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. Keep them all and then you can inherit eternal life. (laughs) And this young man's response, I mean, this response can only come from a young man. Okay, he says, yeah, I've done all that. (laughs) I've done all that since I was a young boy. Now, there is no chance in Devon, right, that this young man uh, was able or had even kept all the commandments. 
He had, at best, um, a familiarity with God. But at worst, he had this self-inflated perception of his own righteousness that meant like, yeah, I've, I've done all those things. There's no way he'd done all those things. I mean, just understand the context here. He goes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, well, to inherit eternal life, dude, you need to be perfect. <laughs> okay. And he's like, yeah, no, I've been perfect since I was a kid. Listen, I've got kids. I know kids aren't perfect. I mean, even just the honor your father and mother thing. Like, you know, my kids break that on a daily basis, especially in homeschool season. But there's no sense of ownership in this guy's life. It's almost like he's so familiar. He's so asleep. He's so apathetic. He's so comfortable that he just thinks, yeah, yeah, okay, I've done all that. What now? And Jesus says this amazing thing. Look at it beyond the screen in Mark 10, 21. It's going to come up. It says that this, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So even though this young guy was, I believe, obnoxious, self-righteous, hypocritical, and deceived, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I mean, I just love that. I love the fact that Jesus looks at us and loves us even when we are like deceived, even when we are, even when we do have too high a perception of our own ability. And Jesus says this to him. He says, one thing you lack. He says, like, of course, now, this guy didn't fulfill all the law. But Jesus says, listen, this is the thing you lack. Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, now, obviously, in this situation, Jesus gets to the crux of the issue, which for this young ruler was a financial kind of comfort. Okay, Jesus says, one thing you lack. But then Jesus says, go and sell everything you have. Like, in other words, Jesus says, go and make some chaos in your life. (laughs) Go and disrupt your life. Like, break out of the boring um, familiarity, the same old, same old monotony of kind of just going through life. Cause some chaos in your world. The thing that brings you comfort is finance. Okay, go and sell everything you have and give your money to the poor. And then in the context of that crisis, come and follow me. You see, crisis is the environment where Jesus does some of his finest work. And the truth is, for this young man, he could never have followed Jesus as number one as long as finance was in his life. Because you always follow the thing that's leading. And so Jesus says, go and give this thing away, cause some chaos, cause some crisis, then come and follow me. Now I believe in the church sometimes we are like so keen to preserve our comfort and our familiarity that we run away from risk, we run away from chaos, we want to run away from disruption. And I believe coronavirus, whilst in many ways it is an opposition to the church, I believe it also presents us with our greatest opportunity that we've had in years. A time where things have been changed, a time where practices have been stopped or prevented or uprooted, A time where we've really had to rethink what is the church even about, which is why I applaud the leadership of Resound Church for saying let's commit to a series where we're going to address some of those things by redefining what the church is all about. And it's with that in mind I want us to think about today, about this idea that like we shouldn't run from crisis and we shouldn't run to comfort. Because comfort, familiarity, the same old, same old, is the very thing that can block us from becoming all that God wants us to become. 
Maybe some of you watching, maybe your life has just become so familiar, so normal. And I would just wonder this morning if Jesus is saying, come on, do something drastic, do something radical in your life, because that's the context that true discipleship plays out. And I believe that the church in the West, we need to re- recover something of that dynamic discipleship. The, the, the stuff that isn't just about attending church. And Pastor Wayne spoke about this a couple of weeks ago and it was brilliant. Just saying that church is so much more than just a building that you go to. You know, we say, I'm going to church on a Sunday. But that is just a moronic saying. It doesn't make sense. Because the church is the ecclesia, as, as Pastor Wayne says. It's the called out of God. You don't attend church. <laughs> you become church. And, and in this season of crisis... You know, there's this sense that like the periphery of church may have dwindled and it may feel uncomfortable and it may feel like it's risky and it may feel like, oh my gosh, this is chaos on the horizon. What does the future hold? But I believe that if we can recover something of what we see in the New Testament, particularly in Acts, that we can be confident that actually God is about to do something profound and significant in the days before us. And so I want to say, I'm in. I'm in for that. You know, this isn't just a motivational waffle. You know, this isn't just me trying to inspire you and, and in the face of hardship and difficulty, just to try and wring out any last bit of life that exists in the church. Actually, the numbers speak for themselves, okay? So let me just show you some of the new numbers in the New Testament. Check this out in Acts 2, 41. Now, bear in mind, this is a time when the church was uh, under pressure. Jesus, their savior, their teacher, their leader, the pioneer of their faith, had been hung on a cross and he had died. And of course, the disciples had seen him rise from the dead, but not everybody believed that. And in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter gets up and preaches his first message and shares the fact that people need to really turn to Jesus And we read in Acts 2.41, in the midst of this crisis, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number just that day. That in the context of crisis, in a time where you're thinking, oh gosh, well, Jesus isn't even here anymore in person. Surely our days are numbered. Well, they are numbered, but they're numbered to favor the kingdom of heaven, right? Because after Peter preaches... 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. In a time of crisis, this exponential growth. Just a few verses later in Acts 2 verse 47, this is what we read uh, on, in the context of the early church devoting themselves to communion, the apostles' teaching, prayer and fellowship. We read in 2.47, they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now let me tell you this, it was not a comfortable thing to be a part of the church. The the church were experiencing certain measures of persecution for the Roman Empire, not just the Roman Empire, but also the the religious institutions were, were kind of coming and scrutinizing the church. I mean, you see it with Saul, in the in the book of Acts, don't you? A bit later on, saw this aggressive persecutor of the church. The church wasn't just like this social club where they hung out and enjoyed barbecues. You know, still remember Australian barbecues, amazing. But it wasn't that. 
It was a dynamic community of people who had surrendered their hearts to Jesus because even though it was a chaotic environment, even though it was a scary environment, even though it was risky and persecuted, people couldn't resist the gravitational force to come into the fold of this Christian community. It's incredible that the 3,000 we see that get saved in Acts 2 that we just read a moment ago devoted themselves. They were so impassioned by this message that Peter gave and the Holy Spirit came on them in such a way that the numbers, even though it was a time of crisis, just went exponential. In Acts 4.4, just a couple of chapters later, we read this. Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So this is even accounting women and next gen and children and stuff. So we can realistically expect by Acts 4 verse 4, we may be looking at 15,000 people. That's incredible, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? That's like a Hillsong plant. <laughs> you know, that's how crazy these numbers are. You know, Hillsong plant a church and week two, there's like 28 million people rocking up for church and there's queues around the corner. It's amazing. But like, bearing in mind the context that like, The church didn't have a history in these spaces. This was a new, fresh organization, and it was hated by the authorities, and it was hated by the favored religious institutions, yet no one could stop the growth of this church. It was literally irresistible. But what was the context for the growth? Chaos. Chaos, disruption, risk, persecution. My favorite reference to church growth, I think it's hilarious. In Acts 5, verse 12, we read this. It says, And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. This was a place uh, where basically... uh, the teaching would happen in the temple courts and it was in the court of the women so men and women could come and hear teaching so we read that like all the believers used to meet together in solomon's colonnade now listen to this no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people no one dared join them why because it was a risky community it was it was a persecuted community it was a dangerous community there was too much chaos i mean if i'm wanting to live my australian dream you know having my house on my plot of land with a bit of bush out the back and like some crocodiles in my pond and like some great whites in my swimming pool if i want to live my australian dream and have my two kind of mpv cars and my kids in a good school and that nice little church attending family The church isn't the place to live out those dreams because the church is just too risky. It's too chaotic. It's too dangerous. So no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now check out this next verse. It's so funny. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So on the one hand, no one dared join them. Verse 13, no one dared join them. But verse 14, no one could stop themselves. There was something irresistible about this Christian community that was flourishing, that was growing in favor. This Christian community that was known by their love for one another, the, they, the way that they would bat for one another, the, one that, the way that they would support one another. When one came into financial hardship, the others would rise and give out of their provision to help support. There was something about this Christian community that even though on the one hand on paper, no one wanted to join it, No one could stop themselves joining it. It was irresistible. Now, what's really interesting, just to look at some early church math, according to some archived historical documents that we have available, we read that in 100 AD, this is crazy, there were 25,000 believers on census. 
Now, the reason they took a census in 100 AD is because the most aggressive persecution of the early church was about to break out. The emperor wanted to squeeze the life of the church uh, out of the land that he was governing. And so in 100 AD, they took a census, and there was 25,000 believers on census. For the next 200 years, the most horrific persecution plays out. Like gladiatorial sports, like Christians were just martyred and executed for the faith that they professed in Christ. And over 200 years of aggressive persecution, it would be reasonable for us to expect that this church, this Christian community of 25,000 people would have dwindled maybe to just a handful of home churches. But what we read in these historical archives, is that over those 200 years of aggressive persecution, the church had grown from 25,000 people to 20 million people. 20 million people who are willing to stand up on census to put their name to this idea that, hey, I believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and I believe that he is Lord. Bearing in mind the context of the, of the um, if you like, the census would be that you have to say that Caesar is Lord, that the emperor is Lord. But over these 200 years, a time where there was chaos and difficulty and opposition and persecution breaking out, God did some of his greatest work, growing the church from 25,000 people to 20 million people. No one dared join this community, but no one could stop joining this Christian community. I mean, just to help you understand, that is like a multiplication of 800 times bigger. Talking percentages, you know, if you're like a money man, if you're a business person, then that is 79,900% increase. Like, who would have thought it? Like, like if you're like me and you're a bit of a sports fan, I still remember our experience and our visit to the MCG ground. That was great, watching uh, the Australian football, the uh, AFL uh, play out. I heard this thing where like, I went to go and watch a fight and a game of a- AFL broke out. <laughs> because literally, <laughs> literally, that game is so rough. I literally went to watch a fight and an AFL game broke out. It is that rough. Like, I was watching, I thought, they're going to break their necks playing this game. But hey, it was fun because I wasn't playing. I was simply, like, just spectating that. Like, gladiatorial sports kind of thing. Like, watching people get absolutely killed on the pitch of AFL. But what's interesting is, like, if we're talking about that, then, uh, you know, it's like a quarter of the MCG being full, right, in 100 AD. And then 200 years after a horrific persecution... Aimed towards that quarter full MCG crowd, okay, 25,000 people crowd, right? It's now grown in 200 years to 222 fully packed MCG grounds. 222. Like if we went to the MCG and you said that like all of our community can fill up a quarter of this stadium, like you maybe feel a sense of affirmation, but ultimately I'd be kind of daunted by those numbers because I think, wow, look how big the Roman Empire is. But within 200 years, it's like having 222 fully packed stadiums filled with believers. I mean, there's a more ris- recent kind of uh, survey, you know, in the 60s, 70s, when China became aggressive in their persecution of the church under Chairman Mao. 
uh, like literally Chairman Mao wanted to wipe the church completely eradicate it from the face of the earth so we started with China like you know Christianity presented too much of a risk to his communistic dictatorship and, and so what he did is he banned missionary organizations and ministry organizations from being in China okay and he executed ordered the execution of all of the primary leaders of the known churches at that time so it'd be like him ordering Wayne and Ruth Swift to be executed and I'm sure none of you would want that would you None of you would want that. Okay, and then taking the second and third tier leaders and torturing them and imprisoning them. So killing the likes of Wayne and Ruth and imprisoning like your Trent and Sarah's and your ministry leaders. Like, he was so keen to get rid of the church that like it was such a horrific persecution. Now when he started that, right, there were two million Christians believed to be in China. According to the missionary organizations and the ministry institutes, they reckon there are about 2 million, Chinas, uh, 2 million Christians across China. And then over the next decade, crazy persecution. What did those missionary and ministry organizations do? They came out of China and they started thinking about, right, how can we best position ourselves when we re-enter China to rebuild the rubble of what's left of Christianity? They were expecting Christianity to be completely decimated in China. And so for the next 10 years, they were training and they were studying and they were equipping and resourcing people to go back into China and build with the rubble of Christian, Christian wasteland that was left from Chairman Mao's rule. And then in the 70s and early 80s, the bamboo curtain lifts and people are able to return into China. The missionaries and the, the ministries re- return to China. And under this decimating regime, what do they find when they're expecting the church to be totally on its knees? They find that the church has grown from approximately 2 million people to 60 million people. What is the context? The context is chaos, disruption, discomfort, persecution. I hope you're beginning to see that like coronavirus... For us, initially, it may seem like the world's biggest opposition. But let me kind of just try and paint it to you from the kingdom's perspective. I believe it's heaven's greatest opportunity. Heaven's greatest opportunity for the church to rise in this season and go from strength to strength. I mean, this is the big picture. And if I was to give my message a title today, you know, first of all, I'd want to say this is, listen, the church is the hope of the world. You know, a number of leaders, forerunners before us have said this. The church is the hope of the world. But I would want to call my title this morning is this. The church is still the plan. The church is still the plan. God hasn't decided that he's going to use another vehicle in which he's going to reach the broken and dark and dying world. We know it's God's desire that no person would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And how does he do that? It's through the mission of the church, and the church is still the plan. And so how do we do this? How do we respond to this coronavirus season? Well, I want to say this. I want to say it's not rocket science. Which is good news because the Bible tells us that, he uses, uh, that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So it's not rocket science. You don't need a PhD or MA in theology. If you've got that, that's brilliant. It's great to have clever people in the kingdom. But the truth is when Jesus came, he, he simply invited ordinary, unschooled people to participate in this greatest ministry and missional kind of model that had ever existed to impact the world with the love of Christ. And so how do we do it? Well, let me tell you this. 
The reason that I'm standing on this platform in Sunny Hill today at one of our campuses, broadcasting to you in Melbourne uh, at Resound Church today, the reason that I'm on this platform and the fact that you're watching me either online or in the room is because when I was 17 and a half, one of my friends invited me to go to a church service. Simply invited me to come and be exposed to the message of Jesus in the context of an evangelistic evening, an outreach evening. And at that meeting, there was like a hundred-year-old preaching. He was an old guy. I think he was dying before my eyes as I was watching him. <laughs> Literally, he was just like, yeah, I'm sure. I, you know, I was worried about it. And, you know, and he gave this appeal, and he was like, you know, if anyone wants to give their lives to Jesus, I thought, well, there's no thanks. I'm not a loser. And, but there was something in me. I didn't want to join but there was something in me that pulled me to the altar. There was something in me on the inside of me. But it all originated with my friend Simon Mayer just inviting me to go to this service with him. Invitation is such a powerful thing. Such a powerful thing. Don't underestimate the power of invitation. Think about the early church. Think about China. That This is how the church go. People inviting. Hey, I'm going to go to Solomon's Colonnade. Do you want to come? Do you want to come and hear this message? Hey, I'm going here today. Do you want to come? I've got this small group. Do you want to come? Like I think about Jesus reaching his disciples. The whole thing started with this invitation to come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Like when you respond to the gospel, it's an invitation saying, Jesus, I invite you to come and be king of my heart. It's about invitation. Like... We, we can, and I've sat in a lot of conferences where we kind of take the burden off our shoulders and just go, oh, it's Jesus' church, he's going to build it, it's all good, all we need to do is just stay indoors and sing songs. It's simply not true. The way that the church is grown, yes, it's a work of the Spirit, yes, it's a reviving work of God, but where does revival happen? It happens in the church. It's as we come awake, we come out of our slumber, we come out of our comfort, we come out of our familiarity, and we're willing to embrace the chaos of the world, and we're willing to embrace the chaos of the streets, and start bringing invitation to people. Hey, why don't you come on an Alpha course with me? Hey, why don't you come over for dinner? Have some dinner with my wife or with my husband. Why don't you, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday on, this, on Mother's Day? You know, why, why don't you come and do these things? Why don't you watch just the service online? That's how so many of these things start playing out. I read a book uh, a little while ago called The Inviting Church. And the author of this book, and I'm coming into land slowly, so if I'm a bit over time, I apologize, but you remember, that's my style. <laughs> okay, <laughs> awkward. Okay. <laughs> you shut your face, right? You shut that God-given mouth of yours, okay? The inviting church, right, audited 50,000 new Christians over the period of 10 years. 50,000 Christians, so it's a wide-reaching survey. Now, of those 50,000 people, let me tell you this, 90% who had given their lives to Jesus responded to a blatant invitation to go to church. So 45,000 people of that 50,000 survey had given their lives to Jesus because what I, how it started was simply somebody inviting them to church. Now, let me break that down for you, okay? 2% of those invitations were by advertisement. So imagine just like a social media post that just says, come to our Easter Sunday service and someone rocking up and then ultimately getting saved. 6% of those invitations were extended by pastor, pastors, pastoral invitations. In other words, maybe a chaplain at a bedside in hospital saying, come to the chapel, come to church, come to this event. 6% by organized evangelism campaign. 
So maybe like the Alpha Course program worldwide, extending an invitation generically over the airwaves, over radio, over TV, over social media to just start an Alpha Course. But listen to this. 86% of those invitations that was given to the 45,000 people that responded to Jesus, 86% of those invitations were given by friends and family. Let me tell you this, is that the people you're going to reach in your lifetime, you probably already know. It's your friends. It's your family. It's the moms on the school run. It's the people you work out with in the gym. It's the people you fight with on an AFL pitch. It's the people you try to kill on a weekly basis. <laughs> you know, th- th- this is the situation. Is that 86% of those who had responded to the gospel appeal... Their invitation came from friends and family. Now, let me give you this other shocking statistic that was recorded by Tom Rayner, um, who's a world, well-known kind of leadership consultant in the church. By his survey and auditing, he came to the conclusion that only 2% of church people invite unchurched people to church. Wow. Isn't that so scary? Yeah. You, you can see the potential negative trajectory of the church if 86% of people in your world are going to be reached because you would extend an invitation, that's the way they're going to come into a relationship with Jesus. Yet only 2% of you watching are actually going to extend those invitations. You can see really on paper the church is on borrowed time. But let me tell you this. I believe that the crisis and the chaos in the world right now presents a real opportunity for the church. An opportunity for you to maybe just extend an invitation. People who would have declined before may now go... You know, this world is so messed up. The wheels have come off the wagon. It's off its hinges. There's got to be more to life to this. And maybe like the rich and ruler, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, I don't know. I just think now is the time. And so with this, I conclude because I really want to help you understand how powerful invitation can be. Because when we think of gospel invitation, I don't know if you're like me, but my mind is drawn to the likes of Billy Graham, this giant of the faith. This evangelistic kind of monster who goes around the world filling stadiums and extending. They reckon over his lifetime he extended about 2 billion invitations to respond to Jesus in person. Like that, It's crazy when you think about it. We've all heard of Billy Graham, but I bet most of us have never heard of Edward Kimball. Let me tell you about Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a normal guy who attended a church in Massachusetts. He was a Sunday school teacher like a normal Sunday school teacher. And and what he would do is he had this burden and passion to just equip kids in the church and off the local estate to really follow Jesus with their whole heart. And so the church would, if you like, bus in kids from the local community and he would make it his life's goal to invite them into a walk with Jesus. And kind of he records in his own memoirs that like there was this troubled group of lads that would come on a weekly basis. And God really put it on his heart that he should do everything in his power with his time, with his money to lead every single one of these boys to Jesus. And he thought what he would do is he would start with the one who seemed to be the most troubled. And he would kind of constantly, you know, be extending the invitation. You know, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. So much so that, like, he would go to the, his place of work, this young man's place of work, who had yet to, to accept this invitation to follow Jesus. Um, Edward Kimball would go to his work on a Saturday and he would work in a shoe store and Kimball would come and he would just petition saying, listen, you need to accept Jesus. And eventually this boy succumbed to this invitation in his uncle's shoe store. 
And what's crazy is that young man that accepted Jesus in response to the invitation of Edward Kimball is known as D.L. Moody. Now, many of us have heard of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went up to light America with the gospel, doing crusades all over the world. But the reason he came to Jesus was because Edward Kimball understood that it was his responsibility to bring an invitation to the most troubled boys on the estate in which he ministered. Now, listen, D.L. Moody, being saved, decides to set up his own evangelistic kind of crusade campaign uh, ministry that would go around the world, particularly around the British Isles and around America, just sharing the gospel with people. And one day when he is ministering, as D.L. Moody is preaching, somebody by the name of Wilbur Chapman has been invited to go to one of these meetings by his grandmother. Okay, so Wilbur Chapman responds to an invitation that has been extended by his grandmother to go to one of D.L. Moody's meetings. And at this meeting, Wilbur Chapman gets filled with the presence of God, comes to an awareness of his sinfulness, gives his life to Jesus. And then in response to what he's seen D.L. Moody do, Wilbur Chapman thinks, I need to set up an evangelistic crusade where I invite people to come into a relationship with Jesus. So Wilbur Chapman then sets up his own outreach ministry and he travels and he preaches mostly around America. And one day, a professional baseball player known by the name of Billy Sunday is invited to go to one of Wilbur Chapman's outreach services by his wife. Billy Sunday's wife is saying, listen, come to this outreach night with me. I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to hear some great stuff. Billy Sunday goes and this professional baseball player, he gets saved. Right? He responds to the gospel. He responds to the good news. He gives his life to Jesus. And Billy Sunday then joins. He leaves baseball behind. And he joins Wilbur Chapman's ministry and goes around the world preaching, sharing his testimony, his story. And Billy Sunday preached the gospel for years. And at one of his meetings uh, where Billy Sunday's preaching, a young lad called Mordecai Ham, who was invited to one of Billy Sunday's services by his school teacher, comes into this space and Mordecai Ham hears the good news and responds to the invitation extended by Billy Sunday to follow Jesus. And like the rest of the run, Mordecai Ham decides, I'm going to set up my own evangelistic crusade. I need to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. So uh, Mordecai Ham then eventually starts doing evangelistic crusades too. And one day, a teenager rocked up at one of his rallies after responding to an invitation from his best mate, just like I did at the age of 17. This young man responds to an invitation from his best mate to go to one of Mordecai Ham's services. It's amazing because this young man all of a sudden who was invited becomes aware of the need for God in his life and he decides that he's going to surrender his life and so he takes the knee and he accepts Jesus. That young man is known by the name of Billy Graham. The Christian is to witness for Christ. Now how do you witness? You witness by the way you live. The smile, the courtesy, the thoughtfulness, the graciousness. You're witnessing for Christ. And if you live a changed life in which Christ is living in you and radiating out through you, other people will be attracted to you and they'll say, what's your secret? And you'll say, I know Jesus Christ. Under Billy Graham's ministry, as I say, 2.2 billion people heard the gospel and millions of people. There are probably people watching this stream, probably people in the room right now 
who have been impacted by Billy Graham's message, who may not be here without the invitation that came through Billy Graham. And this is the amazing thing. The whole run from Edward Kimball to Billy Graham was just a series of people being obedient with bringing an invitation to people. You see, you may not be a Billy Graham, but what if you're called to be an Edward Kimball? What if you're called to serve in your Sunday school and take responsibility for every child that walks through that door to make sure that an invitation extended to them to know Jesus? And it's through this that I just think I can never underestimate the power of an invitation. And I can never underestimate how crisis and chaos is where God does his finest work when it comes to church growth. I've heard it said like this and it helps me understand and with this I'm going to close. You can count the apples on a tree. When an apple is fully formed, you can count the apples on a tree. I can count, you know, 20, 21, 22, 20. I can count the apples top to bottom because when they're fully formed, they're easy to count. In the same way that we can look around the room now or even online at Resound and we can count the people in the room. You can count the apples on a tree, but you can't count the apples in a seed. What do I mean by that? Every time you extend an invitation to a mom at the school gate, you never know the potential of that seed that you are sowing. Or the colleague that you reach out to on a lunch break and saying, hey, Resound is doing this. Do you, do you want to come? Do you want to come and join? I'll come with you. Like, I can count you as a believer, but it's impossible for me to count the fruit that you will produce as you sow those seeds of obedience in the grounds of people's hearts. And so I just want to challenge you today and provoke you and say, listen, the church is still the plan. You are still the plan. I am still the plan. And I believe that uh, God is going to do his best work in the days before us not behind us so don't try and return to what was fully embrace all that god is bringing into fruition in this season amen amen let's pray resound father god i thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us lord i thank you lord that every single one of us watching this broadcast stream or in the room lord at some point responded to an invitation and god i thank you lord god that you have called us now to be fishers of people And God, I pray for every Christian watching this broadcast, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would just stir up inside of them the desire to understand that you want to use them to grow your church and expand your kingdom. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Lord, we don't run from chaos. We run to chaos. We don't run to comfort. We run from comfort because we know crisis, chaos, disruption, persecution, and risk is the environment in which you do your greatest work. And all God's people said together, Amen. Resound, I love you. We love you. We miss you. We can't wait till we can be with you in person again. Until then, may you know the blessing of God on your lives, on your families, and on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. Hey, what a great message. Thanks for joining us here at Resound Church. We pray that you've been encouraged through the message and that you've grown just a little bit closer to God. While you're online, why don't you head over and give us a like on Facebook or Instagram or check out our website at resound.church. You can subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or head over to our website resound.church forward slash app to grab our app which will keep you up to date with everything going on. Well, don't forget next week there'll be another amazing podcast here to listen to from Resound Church. We hope you join us then.